So good morning and welcome to The Battles Within. We're continuing our series entitled, Who is Jesus? This is actually session number 17. And we're at the, today we'll be studying the uh, wedding in Canaan. Or the, uh, we could say the, uh, some a lot of people talk about the miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine. <clears throat> so we're going to be talking about that today. Before we get started, we want to go to the Lord in a word of prayer so that he leads and guides us in whatever we say. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity we have that we can come and we can share your word. We can learn more about you. And that's really what it's all about, Lord. It's what we do with Jesus. It's understanding who he is. That makes the difference in whether we have eternity or in heaven or eternity in hell. So, Lord, we pray right now that you help us to better understanding your word through the teaching of your word today. For it's in the mighty name of Jesus we do pray. Amen. So, thank you again for your time and for your attention today. We are um, going to be, um, we're continuing our study. Let me get in here. In section 16, just a little review, uh, remember we learned of Jesus having to go to Galilee to see Philip. Remember, the Bible says in, that he had to go to, he had to journey to Galilee. And in Galilee, he found the Philip, and, he, and Philip accepts him as the Messiah. And then we see that Jesus, after Jesus calls Philip, Philip immediately begins to witness to Jesus, witness Jesus by seeking his friend Nathaniel. He declared that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, who's predicted in the Old Testament. Uh, he learned this. He learned about Jesus from Jesus himself. You know, we learn about Jesus from his word. And Jesus said that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, the same as being with God. So we know that the word and Jesus are intertwined. So we understand, we learn about Jesus through the Word, because Jesus is the Word of God. You may remember Nathaniel's response to Philip. He said in John 1.46, And Nathaniel said unto him, Can there any good thing come of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, Come and see. So hearing that Jesus came from Nazareth, Nathaniel thought uh, that he had no more reason to believe that he might have been the Messiah than anybody else because nothing important has come out of the little village of Nazareth ever. He didn't remember recording anywhere in the scriptures that the Messiah would come out of Nazareth. So uh, Philip simply says to him, you know, why don't you just come and see for yourself? Just come and see. Now when Jesus sees Philip bringing Nathaniel to him, he states in John 1 47b, Behold, this is what Jesus said when he sees Nathanael. He said, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. And so Jesus basically gave him the compliment that says, Here is an honest man. Guile, by the way, is a term used for Jacob. So here is a man with no Jacob in him. No Jacob. Remember, Jacob was known as the deceiver because he deceived his brother. Uh, he says, but, but he said, this is a truly an honest man. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? You know, I've never seen you before. How do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you when you were praying. Remember, uh, he, we discussed the phrase. He said, I saw you when you was under the fig tree. The phrase under the fig tree is meant, uh, uh, spending time in meditation and prayer. Today we might say, 
you know, your prayer closet. Well, you've been to your prayer closet. Well, see, in that day, it was, uh, are you, you under, been under the fig tree? Have you been under the fig tree lately? We talk about ourselves. Have you been under the fig tree lately? Have you been meditating and praying to God under the fig tree? Are you, have you been under the fig tree? Well, Nathaniel, while he was praying to God, God saw him. Jesus said, I saw you when you were praying, when you were meditating. It's perhaps that he might have been meditating about the Messiah and wishing for the Messiah, longing for the Messiah. And so Jesus said, I saw you when you were meditating, when you were asking those things. I saw you. We know that was because John 150, uh, Nathaniel automatically uh, accepted him as the Messiah. Just because he said he saw him under the fig tree? See, Jesus said to him in verse John chapter 1, verse 50, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, thou believest. Thou shalt see greater things than thee. And he said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. In other words, you're going to see miracles. You know, you, you know who I am because I know who you are. What brought Nathaniel to Jesus was that Jesus came to him. You know, we can't be saved unless the Holy Spirit comes and draws us. The good news, folks, is that God said, I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. So we know that God wants all men saved. See, God comes to us. The Holy Spirit comes to us. Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For there's none righteous, no, not one. See, God comes to us. When you're sitting on that pew and you got your hands holding on to the pew as tight as you can because you don't want to go down there, it's the Holy Spirit that's pushing you. It's the Holy Spirit that's nudging you. The Holy Spirit is calling you. See, it's not you calling for Him. He's calling for you. Nathaniel found this out. God came to him. He said, I, you know, when I was seeking you, you were already seeking me. He said, greater things you'll see. Now, so now we'll begin to see those things that Jesus was talking about with Nathaniel. We're beginning to see it. He went to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel was from Canaan. And he said, you'll begin to see greater things than these. And so today we'll begin that discussion. If you turn your Bibles to John chapter 2, we're into John chapter 2. Remember again, John is filling in the gaps. We leave behind Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they are missing a section that John wants us to have. God knew when he compiled the Bible that he wanted men to say certain things. He didn't want Matthew, Mark, and Luke to talk about this because they weren't there. He wanted John to talk about it because John experienced this. Maybe more ways than you think. We'll talk about that today a little more too. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I was going to read it all, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to jump straight in and start with the first verse. It says here that, um, uh, in the third day, there was a marriage in, the Can- in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So it says, the third day. Now, you know, we've been trying to do this chronologically, and that's what we're trying to focus on. And it becomes a little difficult because the writers, you know, some of the writers jump around a little bit. Uh, Luke jumps around a little bit because he's, he's telling a story, and he's writing it in the form of a story. Matthew and Mark, somewhat more chronological. Um, 
Mark, John, on the other hand, is focused on filling in the gaps. So John tells us he thinks it's important. So he said, listen, now this is the way it goes. On the first day that we talked about, John the Baptist sees Jesus on the streets and Andrew and John follow him. On day number two, Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. On day number three, Jesus goes to Galilee to find Philip. On day number four, Philip brings Nathan, Nathaniel to Jesus. And on day seven, now if this was three days, that was on day four. Now on day seven, Jesus travels to the wedding with his new disciples. So this is three days after Jesus met with Nathaniel. So this one says on the third day, John is giving us a detail of this first week of Jesus' ministry. The first week. He did all this in one week. Well, why is this important? This simply shows us the pace at which Jesus was moving in his ministry. Once he began his ministry, Jesus had limited time to get his work done. Folks, we have a limited time to get our work done. Are you busy doing God's work today? Time is of the essence. We get older and older, quicker and quicker, and we have no promise of tomorrow. I've lost some dear friends lately for a variety of reasons. Several of them have been the result of, of, of comorbidity of COVID. And, and it's, a, it's a terrible disease. But where time is limited, what have you done? Both of these men, by the way, were, fi- were, were fine, faithful Christian men and have, are gone into the presence of Jesus and they wouldn't come back if they could. Uh, they have their reward today. We are still seeking for the, we're seeking for that city on a hill. They're in the city on a hill. Anyway, uh, Jesus did not waste time doing the work that God had given him to do at all. Uh, now, some Bible scholars want to place more significance on this seventh day. I'm not going to do that. I think the purpose of the seventh days was to show that Jesus was moving at a fast pace. There are others that will spend a lot more time talking about the significance of the number seven and the number six. And there are significance in the Bible. Remember, the number six is the number of man, whereas the number of seven is the number of God. Seven being a complete number. It's the number of God. God completed. In six days, he built the world. On the seventh day, he rested. Seven is a completeness. Uh, the, the Antichrist will be 666. What does that mean? That means he wants to be God but can never be. You know, if you think about the numbers of six, you get to, or if you're doing the power of seven, six, 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 all the way to the end, but it's never seven. So no matter how much he wanted to be God, the Antichrist can never be God. He will be man. He will never be God. No matter how much he tries, no matter how much power Satan may give him, he will never be God. See, God's number is seven, but Again, that's not what I think he's talking about here, so we're going to keep going. Second part of verse 1. There was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee and the mother of Jesus there. So we see this occasion. Seven days after Jesus had started his ministry, three days after Nathaniel had been added to his flock. Now remember, we've, we've had Andrew and John. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. So the Galilee... Uh, uh, it said there was a wedding in Canaan. Now, Canaan is a small town in Galilee where Jesus was staying at the time because he was there with Nathaniel. Nathaniel was from Nazareth, from Canaan. Uh, not much is said about this wedding. We don't really know who the wedding is. We're going to ponder that in a minute. The question is, 
So whose wedding is it? Great discussion is on this, and we're going to try to go through this as quickly as possible, but there's a lot to be said about whose wedding it is. Well, some think it was Nathaniel's. I mean, Nathaniel was from Canaan. He had just met Jesus and became one of his disciples, so it's possible that he invited Jesus and the disciples to come to his wedding. Uh, that This one is, I kind of think it's not really likely. And the reason why that is because Mary wouldn't have known him since Jesus didn't know him. And therefore, uh, uh, it really wouldn't have been something that Mary would have been overly excited about needing to help them. So I don't think it was Nathaniel. Now, some heretics... Uh, and and heretical, 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 there we go, heretical writings, and one of them includes Bishop John Spong, in his book, Born of a Woman, says it was Jesus' wedding. You know, now, so, uh, 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 some people think that it was Jesus' wedding, and that was why that his mother was so concerned about the wine running out. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's not plausible at all. And let me explain to you why. Uh, archaeologists recently discovered a translation called the Jesus White Papyrus, written in the 4th century. And uh, in this writing, it says, Jesus said to them, my wife. Now, this discovery that may be interesting in the fact that it's one of the first Gnostic writings to explicitly state that Jesus had a wife. The Gnostics had tried to make Jesus human, all human. And uh, well, so before the couple of uh, um, the the before the couple of the Gnostic Gospels mentioned Jesus having a close relationship with Mary Magdalene, but none of them specifically state that Jesus was married to her. So until this writing, a lot of the Gnostic writings had indicated or had kind of hinted that there was a personal relationship between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And you've heard that and you may have seen the, the old stuff, Jesus, you know, superstar, uh, you know, that, 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 that really terrible uh, lie about Jesus. But really, ultimately, it doesn't matter what that book, that writing says, or what any other Gnostic gospel says, because they have no authority. Gnostic gospels have no authority. They've all been proven to be forgeries invented to create the Gnostic view of Jesus. So you say, well, what is Gnosticism? So Gnosticism is the belief that human beings contain a piece of God the highest God, good, or divine spark within themselves, that everyone contains a piece of God within us. is Gnosticism. Uh, the Gnostics are divided in their belief about Jesus. Some people believe that he only appeared to have human form, but that he was actually spirit only. So he really looked like he was a human, but he really was a spirit. Well, if that's the case, you couldn't have felt his hands. You couldn't have hugged him. If he was a spirit, you couldn't touch him. And people clearly touched Jesus. How could the people have whipped him and put a thorn or a crown of thorns on his hand if he was not an actual human being? So that view is really out there in left field, you could say. Another view uh, that they have about Jesus is that 
They contend that his divine spirit came upon his human body at baptism and departed before crucifixion. In other words, he was a human, God's spirit came upon him, and then he departed at crucifixion time. Again, that is not true. We know that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He's the man God, the God man. We know that. So that, that, that really clearly, don't read any Gnostic writings whatsoever. They're just strictly designed by Satan to deceive people. Uh, now, so the question is asked, though, what if, if Jesus had been married? Now, let me tell you, if Jesus had been married, the Bible would have told us so. Um, there would not have been any ambiguous statement because we know that Jesus mentions his mother, the Bible mentions his adoptive father, his half-brothers, his half-sisters. So why would they neglect the fact that Jesus was married? So if Jesus had been married, the Bible would have told us so. Everything we need to know about Jesus is in the Bible. And see, it would have told us so. Now, those who believe or teach that Jesus was married are doing so in an attempt to humanize him. They want to make him more human, but we don't need that. God gives us everything we need to know about Jesus. A second question would be is, so then, well, could Jesus be married? You know, would it have been a sin? Is it a sin to get married? No, it's not. There's nothing sinful about being married. Uh, there's nothing sinful about having sexual relationships in marriage. Because the Bible tells us the marriage bed is undefiled. So, see, Jesus could have been married and still be the sinless Lamb of God and the Savior of the world. He could have been. Understand, he could have been. But at the same time, there's no reason to believe that he was married. There's no reason whatsoever. There's no evidence to that. Uh, that would be a significant amount of liberty in the history of Jesus to add that as even a possibility. See, there's no way. See, Jesus came to fulfill a task, and that task was not that. He was not here for earthly pleasures or to enjoy those things of life. He was here to die as a sacrifice for our sins, to live a sinless life and die in those places. Uh, so we see it was not it was not Nathaniel. We see it was definitely not Jesus. So then somebody else says, well, maybe it was the sister of Jesus. You know, Jesus had sisters. Um they're never mentioned in the they're they're never mentioned by name in the scriptures. They just simply in passing. Matthew thirteen fifty six says, "And his sisters are they not all with us?" This is what the Nazarite said. So clearly he had sisters, and they were obviously probably married. So it could have been that that this was one of his sisters' wedding, and that would explain why Mary was so concerned about the wine, uh, you know, over others. That's a possibility. But then this is the one I kind of like the possibility of. And I, I really, I did not think about this until I started studying on it now, but I think this is a very good possibility. Uh, Thomas Aquinas actually came up with this possibility among others, and, and I think it's a very valid, plausible ex explanation. This could have been John the Apostle's wedding. It could have been John the Apostle's wedding. And let me tell you why I think that. First of all, John, as we know, never refers to himself in his gospel. He never says anything about himself. He doesn't refer to himself except he refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved, or, but he never refers to himself. Well, they don't refer to who the bridegroom is in the wedding. No reference to him whatsoever. So therefore, that could be, that would fall in line with that. John was also related to Jesus. Remember, John's mother, Salome, was 
Jesus was Jesus and Mary's sister. They were cousins. So therefore, it could be that Mary was concerned because her sister's wedding, her sister's daughter, or her sister's son's wedding was going south. And Mary would definitely have had a sense of need to help her sister with her son's wedding. So I think if I'm going to put a, if I was going to have to say who the wedding was, I'm guessing it was John the Apostle, St. John's wedding. But the fact is, we don't know for sure. And really, anything that we do on that would be speculation. We didn't know it was a wedding. We do know that Mary was there. Let's look at verse 2. Um, both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. So we see Jesus and maybe five disciples. It doesn't say how many was there. Uh, we know that, 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 that it's possible that he's, he collected five apostles at that time. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. But the names are not listed at this point. It says his disciples. It's possible that some of these men were not there, you know, seeing that Jesus calls them later again. So we're not really sure who all the disciples were that were there. Uh, but we know he had his disciples. We also know the wedding must have involved a close family connection for Jesus to have been invited. You know, uh, and, and if it's a close family relation, that would also explain why Jesus' mother chose to involve herself and her son in the affairs of the wedding. Look at verse 3. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. When they wanted wine, we're told at this point that the wine runs out. Now, this is a surprising event. Because wine drinking was one of the highlights of any of the Jewish weddings. Perhaps uh, more people attended, maybe, than the host had expected. Let's face it, they invited Jesus and the and at least up to five of his disciples at the last minute. So there was more people at the wedding than was originally planned. It's also perhaps the host just did a poor job of planning. But either way, uh, we know that the wine ran out. Um, yeah, either way, we know that the wine ran out. Uh, now, for the wine to run out, not only is that a social disgrace uh, to fail for the care of the guest, but it's also financial implications as well. See, in their culture, if you invited someone to a party or dinner and you were legally, you were legally obligated to care for them properly, so if you're invited to the wedding, you're I mean invited them to a dinner or to a party, you're legally obligated to care for them properly. If you didn't, you're expected to compensate them for their loss financially. For what they would have spent on food or drink or whatever or lodging. You're financially responsible for that. So there was more involved than just those things. So it was a it was a big deal. To not, not, not meet the needs of the guests. So the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. So Mary turns to her son and simply says, They have no wine. Now, you know, when a mother, especially a Jewish mother, says something like this, it's not simply idle chit chat. Uh, she's expecting her son to recognize the seriousness of the problem and to do something about it, to rectify the problem. Now, you know, we know that perhaps her close connection to her host led her to want to help, as we've seen. If it's her sister, you know, her sister's boy's wedding, you know, 
that, that's the, the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what exactly did Mary think that Jesus was going to do? Now, what did she think she was going to do? We know that in John 2, 11, that we're reading at the end of this lesson today, he says, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee, which seems to suggest that Jesus had not performed any miracles up to this point. So all those Gnostic writings or those apocryphal writings that talk about Jesus a little boy that took a bird and... There is no indication whatsoever that Jesus performed any miracles up to this point. Matter of fact, we would argue that he did not. Because to have done so would have made him not man. See, remember in the wilderness. When Jesus was in the wilderness, he called upon the Holy Spirit to fight his battles. Jesus used the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit filled him with the power. The power that Jesus used while he was on earth was the same power that you and I can use. You understand? People say, hold on, we're not God. No, we're not God. But we have the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus had all the power. He had all the attributes. But he, re- he set them aside temporarily while he was here on earth. He set aside those things. He set aside his omniscience, all-knowing. Knowing what the Father knows, not even the Son, he said. See, he temporarily set aside his all-knowing. He set aside his omnipotent, all-powerfulness. He temporarily set it aside and put himself in human flesh. And was hungry, it said, and was tired and was sleepy. He God? Yeah, because he became a man. He put himself in there and he set aside all his power. And the last thing is omnipresent. He wasn't everywhere where he was. Everything he did, he did through the Spirit of the Holy, the Holy Ghost, the Holy, the Holy Spirit gave him the power. So we see that was at this point in time, he just got the Holy Spirit. He'd just been filled, baptized with the Holy Spirit as a man. He always was part of that, understand? But he had the power of the Holy Spirit to do things through that power. And so we, uh, uh, according to John 2, 11, he had not performed any miracles yet. So what gave Mary think that he could perform miracles in this case? You know, it's hard to imagine that she expected anything else other than a miracle, though. Uh, 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 considering that Jesus had no significant financial resources, he couldn't go out and bought anything. Uh, he, and if he could, he couldn't have procured the wine at this late hour amount that they would need. And in verse 5, we'll see that uh, Mary also anticipates that Jesus is going to work something miraculous because he tells the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. You know, this would kind of seem unnecessary if it was going to be something natural. But he said, listen, just do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever it is he asks you to do, you just do. So we see Mary expected Jesus to perform a miracle. You know, it makes sense uh, that she was preparing the service for something unusual. Now, if you look at the entire scene, would one would conclude that Mary expected a miracle. Now, now listen, Jesus, Mary knew who Jesus was. She knew Jesus was the Messiah. She knows who he is from conception. Uh, now she knows that he's been baptized by John. The, what we call the signing of the redemption contract. Right? The redemption contract being that Jesus said, I will live like a man. I will die for man's sin. is a sign of baptism. Right? Going in under is a sign of death. I will live like a man. I will go into this water of death. And then you will resurrect me back to life because I live in a sinless life. 
and I will die for the sins of the world. A redemption contract. We follow him into baptism because we trust in that contract. And we believe because Jesus rose him from the dead, he'll rise us again from the dead. That's the contract. So we see that she knew the contract had been signed. She probably also had been told by Jesus about his testing in the wilderness, about how the Holy Spirit had protected him and led him, and how the angels ministered to him. So we see that Jesus now, and she also sees that Jesus now is beginning to gather disciples. She knows that his ministry has begun. She knows that her son is now showing who he is to the world. She knew already. She now knows he's starting to show. So she had every reason to believe that Jesus had begun his earthly ministry and was now had the power to act with power and authority of his divine nature. He had the power. He had the Holy Spirit. So she asked Jesus to perform a little miracle. I mean, uh, I, I don't know if she understood that Jesus would use water to make wine. I don't know that. Uh, it seems she was confident that Jesus could produce more wine somehow, though. Somehow, miraculously, I don't know, just doing something and filling the bug open up, there it is. I don't know. She believed, she trusted in him, she had faith in him that he could do whatever she asked him to do. Now, there's an interesting irony here. Mary is the only one who truly gets Jesus at this point, right? She's the only one in the world who truly gets Jesus. She knows his origin. She knows his destiny. And she knows his power and authority. She's the only one who gets him. These things are no one else can understand as she does. But then she's the one that's trying to misuse that authority and power. Mary is the one who's trying to use, misuse the power. Mary may have good intentions, and she thinks she's doing the right thing, and she assumes that Jesus' desire to save the host's reputation as part. Well, surely he'll want to help out here. But in reality, she's looking, like, looking at Jesus like he's a genie in the bottle, isn't she? She goes and rubs the bottle and asks for something, and poof, it comes. See, Jesus could do anything. Could Jesus answer any desire she has? Sure he could. He could solve any problem. He could do anything. But is it the will of God? My God can do anything, folks. There is nothing my God cannot do. I am a believer that my God can do anything. The question is, will he? And if he will, why? Because, see, God only does those things that are right, that are just, that are needing to be done. Mary asks Jesus to turn the water into wine. She wants to rob the bottle, so to speak. Make a request and expect Jesus to respond. More than anyone else, she should be sensitive to approaching Jesus in a manner consistent with his, with his divinity. She should be approaching him as the Savior, the divine Savior. She knows who he is, yet she doesn't do that. Instead, she treats him almost dismissively, right? Here, here's Jesus. Jesus, you need to take care of this. We need water and wine. Get it done. You know, now we prone sometimes to make that same mistake, aren't we? Sometimes we approach Jesus forgetting who he is. Forgetting he's the Lord of the universe. 
Instead of coming to him humbly, we go to him. Paul said we can go boldly before the throne. That's right. Because we can go before him and ask our petitions of things that we ought to ask for. We pray. We have not because we pray. We ask not. We ask. We don't have. We ask because we ask amiss because we don't know what we're supposed to pray for. Allow the Holy Spirit to help you. Here, she, we see uh, we, we're to bring our concerns to him. So we know this is not what should have happened because Jesus responds in verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. So we know what Mary asked is not within the will of God. You understand? It's not within the plan of God. Now, consider her his response to his mother. He asked his mother, what does the lack of wine have to do with Mary and Jesus? What have I to do with thee? What has that got to do with me or you? Now, this, this is a uh, what we say is a Jewish, Jewish idiom. It's hard to translate in English. Uh, it can be understood to mean your concerns are not my concerns. So he says, woman, what have I to do with these? He's really saying, woman... Your concerns are not my concerns. This is not my concern. That's what he's trying to say. The problem with this wedding party had nothing to do with Jesus' earthly ministry. Remember, we spent seven days. Jesus is, Jesus is cooking with gas, you could say. In seven days, moving his ministry forward. He is cooking with gas on all cylinders. All right? And now we're at this wedding, and, and Mary asked him to do something that has nothing to do with his earthly ministry. Now, Jesus didn't voluntarily leave the right hand of the Father and lower himself to take on the form of man so he could cater weddings. What has this got to do with me? The Holy Spirit didn't come upon him and grant him power to perform miracles that he could accommodate everyday needs. Yeah, okay, you need a little wine? There you go. You need a sandwich? Yeah, you want a sandwich? Let me give you a sandwich. Yeah, that's not what, that's not what he came to earth to do at all. You know, sometimes God gives us the ability to do things for ourselves. I always think, you know, God doesn't have to do the things that we do for ourselves. Sometimes medicine is an example. Sometimes we go to the doctor and get medicine. Why? Because God gave them the ability to do that, to learn what he needed them to learn so that we could get the medicine. Now, if we choose not to go to the doctor and not get the medicine, why would God heal us? God has healed you because he's given man the ability to give you the medicine. Go get the medicine. Go get the shot. Go do what you need to do. God gave you that ability to do that. He gave it to mankind to meet man's needs. So sometimes we ask for things when we ask him this because God's already given it to us. We just don't want to take it. We don't want to take it in the form he offers it in. Anyway, the miracle was always a mean to an end in his ministry. Jesus only performed miracles that made a difference. Jesus showed signs and wonders to prove a message. But here Mary wanted the miracle done void of any message. Her concern was at the host's reputation rather than Jesus' glory. That's why Jesus asked, what does this have to do with us? Uh, Mary's purpose was not keeping with the Father's purpose, and therefore, by definition, her desires were sin. You say, Mary sinned? Yes, Mary sinned. She did not do, listen, sin means to miss the mark. To not do what God, sometimes there's sin of omission, sometimes there's sins of commission. We sin every day, unfortunately, folks. There's many times I don't do the things that I need to do, or I do the things I shouldn't do. Paul said, I would, the things I would do, I do it not, and the things I would not do, those are the things I do. Because the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. So he says, we do this as well often in what we realize. 
Uh, so look at how Jesus ends his comment to Mary in verse 4, last part of our woman. What have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. He says, my time has not yet come. He's reminding Mary that the timing for Jesus' miracle is according to the Father's plan. So at the moment, she was acting according to her own will and not the Father's will. She was acting upon what she wanted in spite of what God wants. Aren't we doing that sometime in our life? Wanting our will and not the Father's will? Jesus was displaying his divinity for Mary in the way he highlighted her behavior of sin. Jesus showed Mary that what she was asking was sin, was not following the will of the Father. So in a sense, he was acting as a judge, convic- convincing Mary for having, convicting Mary for having the wrong motives and making her request. And then we see verse 5, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. But then notice Mary conveniently ignores Jesus' response and tells the servant to follow his instructions. You know, how many times we ask God and God tells us that's not the way to do it and we still say, I'm going to do it anyway. Go ahead. So what does Jesus do at this point? Well, he goes through with a miracle. You know, why does he do it if Mary was wrong? Well, making water into wine is not a sin by itself. I mean, it's not. You know, Jesus did it discreetly and without drawing any attention to himself. Uh, in fact, the head waiter credited the bridegroom, not Jesus. Only the servants knew what Jesus had done. So Jesus didn't violate the Father's will in performing the miracle because he didn't use it to publicize his ministry prematurely. So Jesus did not violate God's will. See, God wanted him to reveal his will in a certain time, a certain place. This is not the will of the Father. But the mother. But Jesus found a way to conveniently help the mother without violating the will of the Father. See, Jesus never sinned. So for him to do it, he did it within the will of the Father. The Father's will was allowed Jesus to do what was right and not to sin. See, he obeyed his mother's request because not to do so would have dishonored his mother, which would have been sin. Therefore, the humanity of Christ respected his mother and, com- and complied with her request. As divinity, Jesus had to rebuke Mary for her sin, which he did. Uh, John shows us both sides of Jesus' nature in one distinct story. That Jesus, at the end, we see that Jesus' creative work is so superior that his product is the best wine possible. Not only did he do it, but he did it better. Verse 6. And there were set six water pots of stone after the manner of purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. So uh, the description of the six stone jars that used for ceremonial washing, uh, there were two or three measures each, suggesting that there were six of varying different sizes. There were stone vessels were common in Judean days. They actually were made out of limestone, and they could easily carve them, and they used them in life. Uh, so they used the... Uh, uh, they were basically used during the first century uh, B.C. and A.D. for purification. And that's how we know the time period, too, that we can correspond to the story falling between the first century B.C. and A.D. We know it was in that time period, right? Clearly, uh, living water can be stored in large stone water jars, which is function like cisterns holding ritual cleaning water. Then later it can be used for purification. 
Um, the primary purpose of these washing rituals was to become spiritually clean or holy rather than physical cleaning. The, the purpose of this water was not to really wash their hands, but was more ceremonial cleaning for sin. Um, so let's look at John 2, 7. Jesus said to him, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. So Jesus says, them, he's talking to the servants, if the disciples had done it, they might have said they replaced the water with wine. Uh, so therefore, they let the servants do it, not the disciples. So we know that the disciples, nobody, Jesus never touched it. Jesus said, "Listen, go fill the water buckets, water. Go fill your uh, uh, the the go fill the water pots with water to the brim." I mean, fill them. He just says, "He says." Uh, let me read that verse again. Just fill the water pots with water. He didn't tell them to fill it to the brim. They fill it to the brim. He said, fill the water pots with water. And so they, going to the limit, fill it to the brim. I'm guessing it overflowed. Uh, It's unclear if the pots were completely empty or only partially empty. But either way, they're told that they they filled them to the brim. There was no way anything other than water could be added. Verse 8. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. This command was given to the servants. Take it. You fill it, fill the water buckets up, take it out of there, and give it to the servant. Give it to the the uh, 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 take and give it to the governor of the feast. The governor of the feast, by the way, was somebody who we'll read about that in a minute. We'll talk about the governor of the feast. Uh, this showed that the miracle of the water to wine was done immediately, right? Because he said, fill it in the water. Now he said, take it, give it to the, give it to the governor. And 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 as soon as they were filled, the servants were directed to take to the governor of the feast. Jesus made no parade about it. It doesn't even appear that he approached the water pots. He didn't even go. He didn't do no magic alakamam or whatever. You know, he just he didn't touch it. He didn't say. He just said, fill the water up, take it to the priest. It was clear exhortation of divine power. Um, he willed it, and it was done. Now, the governor, we said, is one who preside on the occasion. This is kind of like your, your, uh, uh, your, your person in charge, your supervisor. You know, at a wedding, you have a director of the wedding. This is kind of that person, the person who oversaw the wedding, all the events of the wedding. So before anything went out there, before any food went out there, before any wine went out there, it was tasted, it was tested by them to make sure that it was perfect. John 2, 9 and 10. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew whence, knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. So, when knew, and knew not whence it was. This is said probably to indicate that his judgment, the judgment of this governor was not based upon any bias because he had no idea where it came from. Uh, so he didn't know Jesus had anything to do with it. Uh, when he had known what was done, he would have been less likely to have judged impartially. So we have a testimony that this was real wine and so fine a body and flavor as to surpass that which has been provided ever. So the wine that Jesus made was the best wine. Everything in this miracle shows that there was no conclu- no collusion or understanding between Jesus and any person at the feast. He did it totally anonymously. Uh, he said the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. The wine was so different that the governor 
Uh, the person overseeing the feast called for the bridegroom. He was so surprised he wanted to compliment the provider. This is kind of an un, uh, kind of a break of protocol. He calls the bridegroom away from the party to tell him about the wine. This shows that Jesus also obeyed his mother's wishes, did not use this as a reason to show the world that he was a savior. So Jesus did both. He met the needs of the father while meeting the needs of the mother. And then we get to John chapter 2, verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus at Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. The beginning of miracles did Jesus. This means that this was the very first miracle Jesus ever did. Writings seem to indicate that this was indeed his first public miracle. It says, and manifested his glory. Even though he did not let it known at the time, the servants talked. See, it manifested forth his glory. Even though he didn't share it, the servants talked among themselves because it says Jesus' fame was spread over all the neighboring country. So, it, you know, we know that, that, that the beginning of miracle Jesus came and manifested forth his glory. It revealed his glory. Revealed Jesus' glory. And what purpose? The last part of that verse says, And his disciples believed on him. Namely, more steadfastly than before, being the first miracle that they had ever seen Jesus performed, it was a confirmation of their faith. These men had believed in Jesus, and Jesus was fulfilling their faith. He was validating their faith in him. As we conclude, Jesus used the power of the Holy Spirit to perform, uh, uh, to perform any miracles. The power that was done was through the Holy Spirit, not his own. He contained or restrained his power and attributes. Remember? So he can live as a man and die as a man in our place. The miracle was performed at the request of his mother and done out of respect for her, but with the acknowledgement that this was not his purpose. We never see Jesus doing anything like this again for his mother. It's also evident that Mary never asked again. Mary learned. I think Mary was embarrassed by her sin. I think she was convicted by her sin. You understand? Because she asked something outside of the will of the Father. And that's sin. Uh, but we never see that again. Ever again do we see Jesus, Mary ask Jesus for anything like that. So this lesson shows us that Jesus is who he says he is as we learn uh, as we learn more about him uh, as we continue this journey we're going to learn more about who Jesus is so we see today that Jesus is beginning he gathered his men he went to the wedding he fulfilled his need he recognized it's also important in this chapter to see the separation of Jesus and Mary yes a separation See, Jesus was not just Mary's son. Jesus was Mary's Savior. Jesus was the Messiah. And Mary needed to respect him as the Messiah. See, there's many people who believe that Mary was uh, sinless all her life. Mary needed a Savior. And this shows us in John's writing that Mary needed the Savior just as much as anybody else. She was human. And she had sin and flaws like the rest of us. And therefore, she needed a Savior. You need a Savior today, too. If you're not saved today, why not? 
Your time is coming to an end. All of us is. We have no promise of tomorrow. Please join us next week as we continue on in the battles within, as we continue to look through the life of Jesus and we learn more about who Jesus is. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity we have. We come, we can worship you, we can study, we can learn your word. I thank you, Lord, for you being who you are. I thank you, Lord, for what you do for us. I thank you, Lord, for us understanding better who you are. Who is Jesus? Lord, help us to share this with others so that others can come to know you personally, that you are their Savior. And Lord, I thank you so much for all you do for us. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. I thank you for your time and your attention today. I pray that uh, that you would have a, a great day in the Lord and that you come back and join us next time as we uh, continue on studying and learning uh, who Jesus is.